Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. Daylight savings time, officially behind us now. There's no denying that spring is on the way. No doubt, lots of birds will be making their way back into the ABA area. Not too soon, though. Once you get a few years of birding under your belt, uh, one thing that always happens this time of year, and I feel it in myself as much as anybody. Maybe once the weather turns a little, the resident species really start singing. Birders get a little bit out over our skis, as it were, in predicting migration. Seems like every year at the end of March, we get reports of too early warblers and too early buntings and too early grosbeaks. And while there are a number of early migrants moving through, things like gnatcatchers and hermit thrushes and some of the orioles, the real push of migration, and I know you hate to hear this, but the real push of migration is still for six weeks off. So back off just a little bit. We've still got some time. You're probably not seeing birds that you traditionally expect to see. In April, it's just, I know it's been a long winter. You're ready, you're ready for it. Let's wait just a little bit longer. One thing that is back and requires no waiting though are bird festivals. This spring, the festivals are back after two years of closure due to the pandemic. I don't know about you, uh, but this is really exciting. And if you are a birder looking for opportunities to interact with other birders and, in many cases, the American Birding Association, I have got some exciting news for you. Uh, for starters, I am the keynote speaker at the Kansas Lek Trex Festival from April 7th to 10th in Hayes, Kansas. We're going to be enjoying some prey chickens, some other great spring birds of the Great Plains. I am excited to be on the road again and thankful to Kansas Audubon for hosting me. If you're curious, there are still some spots available. You can get more information at kansaselectrex.org. And of course, if you want to interact with ABA folks other than me, and why wouldn't you want to do that? We, the organization, will be at the Indiana Dunes Birding Festival and the biggest week in American birding this May. We will be covering the Southern Great Lakes very closely, evidently. This is actually our first time at Indiana Dunes, uh, though we have been part of the biggest week for, for many years. But it will be great to be back after two long years away. I mean, it's among the best places on the continent for birding that time of year. And it's uh, among the best places on the continent for watching birders that time of year for good reason. For the same reason. I can't tell you exactly who from the ABA is going to be there. But you can bet that we'll have a contingent. And I am tentatively planning on being at the biggest week. More on that to come for sure. Under the show this week, Danielle Bellany is, to many folks in the birding community, the cemetery birder, and her interest in the birding opportunities found in cemeteries is the subject of an upcoming piece in Birding Magazine. She joins me to talk about the ornithological, historical, and psychological benefits of birding in burial places. All that after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> ¶¶ 
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of March 2022. One first record to report this week out in Oregon, where a cave swallow was photographed, which is always a nice touch with a swallow, in Benton County, not far from Corvallis. Cave swallow is a species that is an unusual, though somewhat regular vagrant across much of the continent. I I say unusual because cave swallows have two distinct subspecific populations that are relevant to birders in the ABA area, that is of five total subspecies. Uh, there is a population in northern Mexico and south-central United States that is increasing pretty dramatically uh, and commonly nests on bridges and overpasses, especially in Texas. That is pallida, pallid meaning pale. And then there is a population in the Caribbean, the nominate subspecies fulva, that is richer in color as a regular late fall vagrant up the Atlantic coast. They're both you know, pretty closely related. I don't think there's any impulse to split them at this time, but it is Worthwhile uh, to at least try and source these vagrants when they do show up. And by all accounts, this bird in Oregon is representative of the pallida, middle of the continent, birds, which is noteworthy as they are much less inclined to wander westward. They're seen in Southern California from time to time, up around the Great Lakes. But this is only the second Northwest record following one from British Columbia in 2012. It was itself a pretty phenomenal find. That is all I have this week. If you want a more complete roundup, please check out the Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. Or to get those readies as soon as they happen, you can join our ABA Rare Bird Alert group that is on Facebook. In many, many parts of the country and the world, the most accessible green spaces are cemeteries. And while they have a morbid and sometimes sad reputation, they can offer lots of great nature opportunities for those willing to explore my guest, Danielle Bellany, is a wildlife biologist in San Antonio, Texas, co-founder of Black Birders Week and the author of the upcoming This is a Book for People Who Love Birds, which is due out next month. Her essay, Lawn of the Dead, Finding Solace, Ecological Integrity, and Good Birding in America's Cemeteries, will run in the next issue of Birding Magazine. She's been on the podcast before, but it's good to have her back again. Welcome, Danielle. Congrats on the article and the book. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's happy. I'm happy to be here. Lots going on. Yeah, yeah. All good things, I hope. <laughs> so for you, which came first, an interest in cemeteries or an interest in birds? And I realize that sounds kind of morbid when I ask like that. I know <laughs> that's not the case, but, you know, um, did birds come first or did birding in cemeteries come first? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Yeah, so it was definitely birding in cemeteries because I had a ornithology class and it was required for us to go um, birding as part of the lab section. And mm -hmm. one of the first places our professor took us was the local cemetery. So I thought it was weird, definitely off <laughs> off the start. <laughs> um, but we were getting some really cool species. I was in um, South Texas at that time, too. Mm -hmm. So I saw birds that I've never seen before. There's like green jays and stuff and a great horned owl just on my first time going to a cemetery. So I was like, okay, there's something here. Yeah. Yeah, so and that sort of led you to explore other other places. Like, I guess in South Texas, they're less green space and more kind of brownish spaces, but wild spaces nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, plenty of wild spaces. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't know what's what's changed, you know, in the last century, but the sort of revelation in your piece that these old established cemeteries in many of the countries and in, in the world's cities were specifically created to be a park. Um, I, I don't know what that was surprising. It was surprising. I guess it was sort of surprising in the way that you're given a piece of information and you're like, oh, that that makes a ton of sense. Um, can you talk about that transition from graveyard to essentially like a public park? Sure. So the initial like cemeteries were kind of dirty, dusky places. They were mainly owned by the church and, you know, there weren't really enough 
systems in place to properly run this. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess down the line, um, folks realize that, you know, we're being overcrowded with dead bodies and like other (laughs) filth and stuff. So let's, (laughs) let's put them somewhere else. (laughs) Um, So yeah, it became an, uh, a really great idea for people to not be buried in, uh, in like a cityscape because, you know, you don't want to get people dirty or people disease and stuff. Right. Um, yeah. But also like they alert to the idea that you can die in a wide open space and enjoy, you know, the countryside in death. So uh, I guess folks around that time thought it was interesting. Um, but it also catered towards the idea that, you know, while you're alive at the same time, you can get out of that dirty city and mm-hmm. have a nice little green space to walk around at like a park. Do you find the history of cemeteries sort of interesting in addition to their burning potential? I mean, there's a lot of public history kind of written in cemeteries, and it's a a way that you can sort of do both. You can have an interest in history and an interest in burning and kind of do both at the same time. Yeah, that's absolutely something that I'm noticing lately um, Mm -hmm. because now I'm going not just for the birds, but like to learn, I guess, the historical context of this area um, and the people that were in it. And you can find some really cool things like... um, the the bio, the botanist Lindheimer. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like a lot of folks know him. He's buried like down the street, and really? I could like go visit his graveyard. And like, I think that's a really cool way to like visit things that you know about. You know, like I don't know. There's full circle elements that are happening um, in my ability to connect with the sociology side of cemeteries, but also the biological side. Yeah, I, I found that to be the case in my um, my city. I live in Greensboro, North Carolina, and there's a big old cemetery kind of downtown that, like a lot of these old cemeteries, is has these massive trees, like like 100-year-old trees there uh, because it's been a cemetery, and obviously no one's going to develop it into into housing or anything. It's, once once a place is a cemetery, it stays a cemetery for the most part. There's, a, there's like an ornithologist there, uh, Gilbert Pearson, who is the guy who the local bird club is named after and i i did not realize it but i guess he's somewhat well known in you know southeast ornithology um but it's it's cool to find these sort of connections all throughout it all throughout while you're sort of enjoying you know being out and birding and and taking advantage of these green spaces yeah definitely i I feel like a lot of birders like to um like fixate on you know ideas so Mm -hmm. um i guess adding the context of you know investigating the people in your area i feel like Mm -hmm. that connects you also to like the birds of that area and why those birds are important and then you can reuse those ideas to connect with the people that are currently there yeah with that in mind it sort of makes sense that there's a a, movement to change the management of parks like public parks from the sort of victorian era idealized highly manicured lawn sort of thing to something more natural and you know, to be completely frank, like cost-effective, more cost-effective to maintain. Um, are big public cemeteries doing the same thing? Are, are cities and towns sort of realizing the potential of these green spaces in their air, in their cities as green spaces instead of just as places where, you know, people are buried? Yeah, it's definitely a slow progression. Um, mm-hmm. I am seeing more programs being put on in cemeteries that I like to hang out in, um, that in, in, invite people to go touring, um, invite people to learn, you know, the historical um, people that are buried in those areas. Um, so people are definitely starting to use them more as parks. And I, I definitely see that more turn towards um, around the pandemic time, too, because yeah, yeah. a lot of people couldn't access museums and et cetera. Right. But, you know, the cemetery is literally an outdoor museum yeah. and a park like put together. Yeah. When you're birding in a cemetery, do you think about the people that are buried there, even if they're not always you know, someone that you might know. I mean, there's a lot of just sort of regular people 
um, who love who lived just sort of regular lives there. And it's hard not to think about that a little bit when you're looking for your warblers and orioles and and sparrows and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, I'm absolutely conscious of like you know being respectful at all times of yeah. wh- who and what I'm around. Um, but sometimes I'll even like show up and like say, Hey, everybody, like, yeah, I know, I know they're not, they can't hear me or anything, <laughs> but I just feel like I'm entering their space as a sign of respect. Like, let me just like uh, present myself and announce myself. Yeah. You, you mentioned in the article that you've written. Uh, there are some cemeteries that are really conscious about protecting habitat. Um, how, how do they do that in these cemeteries? For example, like cemeteries in the Midwest, um, there's some places where mm-hmm. like this is like the last bit of Blackland Prairie in the county. So yeah. it's kind of imperative that they put some type of protection or some type of like importance on those areas because you're having um, unique soil conditions and unique plants, uh, really rare endemic species that are only able to grow in this one acre cemetery that just happened to be preserved. So, um, yeah, there's definitely like a, it's a weird twist on conservation and legacy. Cause you know, the whole yeah, area is soybean sure. fields. Like we right. could have done better. Yeah, right. <laughs> you look at all these places. Sometimes cemeteries are set in, in the middle of some place that has been hit by, as you say, like agriculture or development or, you know, all this. And, and you're, you're stuck with this little, this land sometimes more than others. I mean, sometimes these little cemeteries can be really, really tiny little patches of land. And the opportunity there to to protect these these places, I, I I guess when these cemeteries were created, there's no way that people were thinking in terms of this needs to be protected for wildlife or for some sort of conservation reason. And yet now, decades, maybe even centuries later, it turns out that's sort of like a, a side effect of setting aside this area for for people to be to people to be buried in. Yeah, it's definitely like like I mentioned, it's just like is that really conservation? Like if we just stumbled into <laughs> a solution. Conservation, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but as you mentioned like development is happening at a really rapid pace and I see even like some of the the older cemeteries that are, you know, maybe because they're so overgrown, they're difficult mm-hmm. to see in the brush and stuff. So they'll get bulldozed over and then yeah. the developers are like, "Oh no." Uh, can't do anything about it now. <laughs> yeah, right. And yeah, so so actually a lot of cemeteries do get paved over. Um, and it's it's mm. a really unfortunate because that means, you know, you are losing, one, again, history. Like, I think a lot of yeah. people will first resonate with the history of the area before they resonate. They're like, oh, the birds live here too. Um, but on top of that, you are also destroying a green space that people who might not have a park or some other type of area near them yeah. to go to. But then again, the green space is being also provided for native animals or wildlife yeah. in general. In general. So yeah, lots of lots of loss. It's kind of sad. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I was I was really interested in the um, the story of Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, which is one of those kind of very old, kind of famous cemeteries in a, in a major American city that um, you know still maintains its integrity for the most part as a cemetery. Um, but also, you know, the the people who are maintaining that area are sort of looking towards conservation as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about what they're doing to protect? this green space in the middle of one of the world's largest cities? Sure. So it's effectively a grassland. Like if you think about how much grass area a cemetery has, like it it is a grassland. It functions as a grassland. So um, the people at Greenwood Cemetery, the the managers there, they took into consideration that, well, first off, it it uses a lot of work to keep mowing grass. Yeah, Um, for sure. A lot of 
people work and a lot of gasoline, a lot of resources. So, you know, first off, let's cut back on spending um, and reduce the amount of mowing that you do. Um, and then I, I think as um, they teamed up with uh, Cornell University, I think it was around 2018, to like do an actual study on how the reduced frequency of typical lawn care mm-hmm. um, can affect the grassland. And they're seeing like new, uh, native plants being pop- popped up instead of the the uh, Bermuda grass that is basically blanketing <laughs> yeah, the area. Right. So now there's like little blue stem and um, flowers and bobo links. And, you know, like if you build it, they will come. And sometimes yeah, building sure. it means don't touching it, uh, don't touch <laughs> right. it. And, you know, try to imitate some of the historical um fire regime, you know, grazing conditions, those types of things that yeah. uh, influence the native th- uh, plants around us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I am not sure how I feel about cemeteries as a resting place for my myself, um, but I really do like the idea of being laid to rest or having family members laid to rest in a place that makes habitat and wildlife a priority. I mean, you were talking earlier about that being one of the arguments to encourage people to stop being buried in church graveyards and be buried in these cemeteries in the first place. Well, it's it's almost like it's come full circle. Now, you know, if these cemeteries are making wildlife and conservation and, and sort of native plants a priority, well, that suddenly makes them like a really appealing place to to be, I guess. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you have changed your opinion about about this stuff. Is that something that you think about as well? I guess it's hard kind of not to to think about your own mortality when you're when you're burning in a cemetery. Yeah, uh, it's definitely something that I think about very, very often, um, you know, given given that I am in a cemetery, like, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I do think about my death, but it doesn't really weird me out in a way. And I think right. that's what I'm also trying to help people understand or like get to this understanding of like, Hey, it's going to happen. Let's right. like, figure out the best way <laughs> to, to, no, to, no one gets out of here alive. Right. So just like, let's destigmatize it. Let's like yeah. have a little bit more fun. Like, so what if it's not you necessarily t- uh, enjoying it? It's, you know, you're passing on a legacy and you can pass on a mm-hmm. legacy that also helps conservation and yeah. helps, you know, the future generations of X, Y, and Z. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've even, um, so I've been researching a lot of like death studies and like mm-hmm. listening to lectures and stuff that people put on. And I hear plans of um, like green burial cemeteries that are mm-hmm. more than just a cemetery. They are a community space. They are an organization area. They are parks at the same time. So I think people are definitely gearing up to um, go beyond just like a natural area mm-hmm. um, and go more towards like an area that is multi-purpose, multi-use, because, you know, we are losing our green spaces at a rapid rate and right, kind of right. consolidate, unfortunately, where we do things. Um, but yeah. it's, this is what our future might look like. I mean, there could be worse ways to go, I suppose. You know, <laughs> end up at a place where people are walking uh, and then seeing, you know, the birds that you enjoyed in life, you know, where you are in death. That's, a, uh, that's kind of a nice, a nice thought. Right. And in my mind, I'm thinking like the nutrients that my body is leaving behind is now sustaining, you know, the painted bunting that I wanted. So I'm able to like become a quote unquote, like a a painted bunting in the afterlife. Um, What has been your favorite cemetery to bird in either from a, you know, strictly bird watching perspective or something, you know, more, more broad? Yeah, so I'll definitely touch on something a little more personal. Um, mm-hmm. I 
I discovered that my family has like a private cemetery, two of them actually. Oh, really? Um, on my, yeah. So I've been going out there and like helping to clean up a little bit and like learning mm-hmm. more about my family's history. Um, I guess while also like I'm actively birding pretty much at all times in my right. life. So, so yeah, I, I've enjoyed um, the time that I've spent out there and like, you know, sure, my checklist isn't too exciting from being mm-hmm. out there, but I just feel more connected to this little plot of cemetery, this little plot of land because. Because it's it's my family. I you know another sort of personal in, uh, story. I uh, my my grandmother died a couple of years ago, and I traveled out to Kansas to um, to go to her funeral. And um, yeah, it was it was it was nice. You know, it's, it's this it's this cemetery that is next door to like some some larger kind of prairie. And uh, you know, it was it was nice to sit there. And of course, I kept an Eber checklist um, because that's just what i do um people know that she i think i feel like she would have appreciated that too but it was nice to like watch the little american tree sparrows um hopping around in the grasses around the around the gravestones um it's not one of those cemeteries that really has a mind towards you know nature or anything but you know it's hard anytime as you said like anytime there's a green space that nature is going to be there and it's going to use that that space i think back to all the times that i've actually birded in cemeteries um uh, you know, all all around the all around the country. Um, I did gave a talk at, in Kentucky a couple of years ago before the pandemic, and one of the places that we went was this big cemetery in the middle of Lexington, Kentucky, and a um, lot of like a lot of amazing big trees and lots of birds and Mississippi kites nesting there. It, it's fantastic, and I think once we get past sort of this, I don't know, sort of the the bad reputation, maybe because of our, our own maybe fear of mortality that cemeteries have. There's just so much going on there that's that's really fascinating. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. So I, I do want to talk before we go about your new book, uh, a book for people who love birds due out next month. I was going to ask about the audience, but that is sort of right there, front and center, <laughs> explained right in the title. <laughs> um, how do you want people to use this book? Yeah, so it's definitely like a coffee table book. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like a guidebook or anything. It's definitely to have fun. So, um, you know, share it with your friends, share it with your family who are birders and who are not birders. I think there's a little bit of something for everybody to enjoy in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I touched on quite a few of like the regular ordinary birds that you'll see in typical regions. Um, but I also like brought out the weird birds. It's like they, they have some really interesting lifestyles. It's like, let's, let's bring out the, the not so apparent facts that are, you know, we typically get when we hear about these birds. Yeah. Is it, does it uh, mirror in any way your own sort of journey in, into birding? Do you sort of, uh, I, like, I feel like sometimes these books, you kind of tell a story of how you got into birding and, you know, through your own experiences, you're sort of reaching out and saying, Hey, you can, you can love birding too. If you, you know, love birds, you can get into it as well. Does that have anything to do with how you, how you wrote this book? Uh, yeah, uh, I definitely, I mean, first off, I was amazed that I was offered to like write a book. So I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I guess I could do this. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> I, I definitely put in like tidbits of like, okay, so this is what birding is. This is what it's about. But it, I mean, it's really much whatever you want to make it. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's a, what a book is too. It's really whatever you want to make it. It's not too scary to get started and get involved in. So yeah, big picture wise, I guess I'm encouraging folks to write the thing that you're waiting to write and go find that bird that you've been waiting to bird. Why not? Absolutely. Danielle Bellany, she's a wildlife biologist uh, and she has an article coming out in the upcoming issue of Birding Magazine, Dawn of, sorry, Lawn of the Dead. That's the pun. Onto the dead, <laughs> uh, finding solace, ecological integrity, and good birding in America's cemeteries. You'll be able to find that soon. ABA members will have it in their in their emails 
or in their mailboxes very soon. And also, please check out her new book. This is a book for people who love birds. Do it next month. We'll have a link to all that stuff and wherever you can find her in the show notes. Danielle, thank you so much. And congratulations again on uh, what looks like it's going to be a very busy but exciting April for you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for letting me talk about cemeteries. And Absolutely. It's something I love to do. <laughs> The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits like magazines, discounts, partners, opportunities to travel with us. You can get information at aba.org slash join. I have some special shout outs to make this week to Kevin and Stephanie Boer of Covington, Kentucky, Karen Hinkle of Boone, Iowa, Sarah Leonard of Etobicoke, Ontario, and Charlotte Maine of Conyers, Georgia, all of whom recently joined the ABA, noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so, so much. Welcome to the ABA. If you'd like a way to help out without joining, you can leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, your comments. Help us know what works, helps folks find us. We really appreciate it. Technical production is by John Lowry, who has decided that when he dies, he wants to be dumped into the nearest retention pond and set upon by the local pied builds, a process he has termed grievemation. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who have gone in together on an elaborate, actually really beautiful above ground tomb, richly illustrated with carved crows and ravens, which they are calling the Causaleum. Find us online at aba.org, on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association, but on Twitter as ABA. I've, you know, I've given it a great deal of thought, and I've decided that upon my death, I want to be placed in a casket with a pointy front end, carried to a significant height, and dropped into a body of water, pointy in first, obviously, a process I will call internment. Questions, comments, come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week. Thank you.